Chapter 25 Bill Clark didn't much like the idea of hiring an Indian, but he'd been unable to shake off the cough that had plagued him since the previous winter, and he was feeling low. He needed help, and the Indian was the cheapest laborer he could find. George planted, weeded, harvested, hayed, mended fences, and shoveled manure, and he did it all without complaint. What's more, the old farmer noticed that his Clydesdale liked George. Her affection toward the boy was a good recommendation. Daisy was the biggest animal George had ever seen. Her withers were higher than his head, and he couldn't see the top of her back. But once he got over the shock of her immense size and strength, he realized that she was a gentle and sweet-natured creature with no trace of malice. He felt safer around her than he did around white folk, because he sensed she wouldn't try to hurt him. Most white folk, on the other hand, made his heart eat fast and his stomach churn and sweat break out on the palms of his hands. Bill Clark had not intended to let George work with Daisy. He never let the hired hands touch his precious horse. George was to do everything else, leaving Bill the time and energy to see to Daisy, but... When the farmer brought the Clydesdale back to the barn after a hard morning in the field, George pumped water from the well so that the horse could drink, and that pleased Bill. It showed him that the boy cared about the horse. He reasoned that if he taught the boy how to unharness Daisy, brush her down, and feed her, he could take his weary self to the farmhouse and lie down for a bit. The farmer set about teaching his young protege how to care for Daisy. There's no point in trying to force your will on her, he said. If it comes to strength, she'll win. She's got to trust you enough to let you be the boss. Once she knows what you want, she'll be happy to oblige. She'll do just about anything to please you. George was a quick learner, and soon Daisy was willingly dropping her head into the bridle to take the iron bit from his hand and picking up her enormous feathered feet so they could clean the dirt from her hooves. The first time George let Daisy out of the barn alone, when she clopped alongside him to the drive shed and backed into the traces of the plow, he felt something warm in his chest. He was disappointed when the farmer refused to teach him to drive the horse. George had to be content with watching the rapport between the old man and his horse, spotting the barely perceptible touch of the long reins that controlled the mare's every footfall. He watched the pair cultivate the soil, working together as a team, and he imagined himself behind the horse, steadying the plowshare, feeling the reins, encouraging Daisy forward with a cluck of his tongue. When the day's work was done and the horse was standing knee-deep in a bed of fresh straw, George would unlatch the stall door and go in with her. He didn't talk to her aloud in the English words that were his only language. He talked to her with his thoughts, and sometimes he felt that she talked back. Boss, you don't look too good today, George said, noticing the sallow hue in the old man's weathered skin. I'm fine, Bill Clark replied with a cough and a wheeze. I aim to plow the soap field today and tomorrow and get it harrowed. I can do it, boss, George interrupted. Bill Clark guffawed, which brought on a fresh spell of coughing. Lad, it takes years to learn to plow a field, he said, once a spasm had passed. I know how, boss. I've been watching you good. Me and Daisy could plow a straight line for sure. It's not as easy as it looks, boy. But you're right. I don't feel too good today. So go harness the horse. Let me see what you can do. If you make a mess of it, no harm. I'll do it over. Almost by instinct, it seemed, George was able to guide Daisy down the edge of the furrow angling the plow, its sharp edge cutting deep into the soil. He quickly learned to balance the speed of the horse with the tilt of the plowshare so that a wave of fresh, damp earth ran continuously from the blade, settling behind him in an almost straight line. And within a day he was a master. Within three days the job was done. He took satisfaction from the symmetry of the plowed field, and he could have stared at its beauty forever. It hurt him a little when the farmer told him to harness the horse to the drag harrow and make that first pass 
over the immaculately plowed field. His thoughts wandered to intricate, frosty designs on the dormitory windows and to Mother Hall, who always made him scrape it off. He hated destroying a thing of beauty then, and he hated it now. But to his surprise, harrowing the field brought fresh satisfaction. With his job complete, he leaned his head against Daisy's shoulder and gazed over the tilled field, inhaling the earthy smell that mingled with horse sweat. He stooped to pick up a handful of crumbly soil, and he let it run through his fingers, and it gave him a sense of well-being that was normally absent from his life. He remembered how he felt at school when he milked the cows, and deep down inside, he knew that he could be more than a hired hand. He knew he could be a farmer. Desire rose in his throat. The yearning for his own land, a horse like Daisy, perhaps a few cows, some pigs and chickens, but how could he be a farmer? He had no land, he had no money to buy machinery or livestock. He pushed the longing back down. It could never happen. It was a crazy thought. No, he would stay here on Mr. Clark's farm. His job suited him. Life was good. As winter settled in, George shivered under his blanket in the hayloft. Bill Clark gave him some winter clothes that had once belonged to his son and a pile of old blankets, and he told him to come up to the farmhouse and warm himself by the wood stove. You chop the wood, lad. May as well warm yourself with it. But George never went. He was not accustomed to being toasty warm in the winter. He preferred to go into Daisy's stall. The heat from her enormous body kept him warm enough. The morning that Bill found Daisy and George asleep together in the straw, the old farmer made a decision that was surprising even to him. George, he said when the young man stirred, I'm going to leave you the horse in my will. George had no understanding of what a will was, and Bill had to explain and George was speechless. The old man then spoke the longest sentence of his life. Sometimes I lay awake at night thinking that I ain't got too much time left on this earth, but I've had a good life, and I don't mind it coming to an end, because I'm tired, and the wife died years ago, and my boy went to the city of York, and he hasn't been back here for years. A spasm of coughing interrupted his words. He pulled a dirty gray handkerchief from his pocket, and he wiped the spittle from his face. He never had any interest in the farm anyways, only the money it will sell for when I'm dead and gone. Money that will line his pockets. He don't care about the farm or about Daisy, and I worry what will happen to her. The way things stand right now, she'll be sold off with the farm, and who knows where she'll end up. She might go to someone who doesn't treat her right. I'll roll over in my grave if I thought she was going to be mistreated. Next time I go to town, I'm going to take myself to the lawyer's office and change my will. I can't think of a better person to leave my daisy to than you. You and her made for each other. Chapter 26 Anyone here? hollered the stranger, holding a white kerchief over his mouth and nose and peering tentatively into the barn, his eyes registering disgust at finding himself in such a place. George climbed down the loft ladder. Who are you? the stranger asked, taking a step back in alarm. I'm George, sir. What are you doing here? George took off his cap and kneaded it in his damp hands, his eyes focused on his moving knuckles. I've been working for Mr. Clark going on a year. I do pretty much everything around here. Pack your things and be out by morning. The farm is being sold. Yes, sir. Me and Daisy will be on our way at first light. Who's Daisy? Your woman? Yes, take her too. Both of you have to get out. Daisy's my horse. Mr. Clark said she'd be mine when he was gone, said he left her to me in his will. The man consulted his notebook, adjusting wire-rimmed eyeglasses back and forth on his nose. You mean the Clydesdale? George nodded. There's nothing in the will about leaving the horse to you. Mr. Clark said he was going to change the will and leave her to me. Said he'd turn over in his grave if she gets sold to someone else. Well, he's rolling over now. 
What do you mean? There's nothing in this will about leaving the horse to you. How long ago did you say he was going to change the will? A month back, maybe more. This will is dated three years ago. But he changed it. He said the lawman would write it down. The stranger unhooked the glasses from his ears. I guess he never got around to it. He never wrote it down like he said he would? No. But he gave me his word. A man's word doesn't mean anything in this situation. It's not legal unless it's written down on paper, signed and witnessed. A memory flooded George's mind. He was a young boy again, and a man with long hair talked to him in a language he did not understand. And yet, George knew exactly what the man was saying. Did you learn the scratchy lines? Yes, George found himself saying aloud. Then, son, you will make sure we are not deceived again. Anger blasted through George. He seethed with frustration. He knew how to read and write the white man's words, yet he had been deceived. He had failed. He wrung his cap in his hands, the only indication of the inner turmoil. It's true. His inner voice screamed, White men are not to be trusted. They are greedy and they want everything for themselves. But even as he thought these things, he knew that Mr. Clark had not intended to trick him. The old man had wanted to write it down so there would be no dispute. He had wanted George to look after Daisy for the rest of her days, but time had run out for him, and now there was nothing George could do. He hung his head in despair. She's my family. What will happen to her? Ah, she'll be auctioned off along with all the other farm equipment. Sold? The man rolled his eyes. That's generally what happens at an auction. How much? George asked excitedly. I have money. I could buy her. Sure, you can buy her. How much do you have? George rushed up the loft ladder and got a small leather pouch from under his mattress. All the coins he had been able to save since he had left school were in the bag. He loosened the drawstring and tipped the money into the man's hands. That's not enough to buy one leg, he scoffed. She's a valuable animal, a champion. A good plow horse is hard to come by. Please, mister, I'll work to pay her. All the man tossed the money on the barn floor, the coins rolling away into dusty corners. I'll go with her, George continued his voice taking on a tone of desperation. The new owners will want someone to look after her and work her. I can handle the plow real good, and the harrow and hay wagon. I know how she likes her oats. Her tummy's real ticklish. You have to be careful when you brush her there, or she'll kick. See, I know all these things. The man in the suit laughed. You want to be sold with the horse? He guffawed. That would sure stop the bidding. He turned and walked away. If you're still here tomorrow, I'll send the police over. That night, George tossed and turned, listening to Daisy in the stall beneath him. He thought about stealing her. He imagined climbing onto her back and riding away as fast and as far as possible, someplace where nobody knew them, where nobody would follow them, where they could start a new life. The spirit of hope made his heart race. We could go north, where there are no white men. But despair rose up to crush hope almost as soon as it was born. What will Daisy eat in the land of darkness and cold? She will starve without grass and hay and oats. Hope struggled to survive. If we leave now under the night sky, we can get away before they realize we've gone, before they start searching for us. The voice of reason spoke. Daisy's too big to hide. People will see us. The police will catch us before we get out of the county. Hope refused to be trampled. Unless we go now, right now, right now. In the moonlight, he led Daisy to the harness shed and he bridled her, cutting the long driving reins to a more manageable length with his knife. He tied his blanket around his shoulders and Daisy's lead rope around her neck. Standing on the rickety stepladder, he scrambled onto her back. She was warm beneath his legs. He felt a little unsure of himself. He clucked, and she moved forward with a surge that left him behind. 
He heaved on the reins. Ho! Oh! Daisy stopped abruptly, and they started over, and this time more smoothly, and they got to the end of the laneway before mishap, but doubt was speaking loudly in George's head. The sun is already coming up. They will catch you. You will go to jail. And memory rose to the surface. He was imprisoned in a small wooden crate. He was cold and lonely, and his limbs were cramped. He remembered a deer mouse that ran onto his lap to nibble the crumbs. He remembered how he had felt when the tiny creature scuttled away between the cracks and left him alone. He remembered hearing the lonely howl of a wolf. And then he remembered that his father had been hanged by the neck until he was dead. Sitting on Daisy's warm, broad back, he uttered a cry of despair into the dawn sky. He turned the big horse around and took her back to her stall. Chapter 27 George walked away from the Clark farm and from Daisy. He had no idea where he should go. He fingered the wolf-head pendant that nestled against his chest. As always, when he held the smooth piece of deer bone in his work-roughened hands, he felt something that bordered on sacred. He did not give thanks to Creator in the way of the people, nor did he say the rote prayers he had learned in school. But he had a vague remembrance that once, a long time ago, the spirit wolves had helped him find his way home. He sent his thoughts through his fingertips. Help me find a way. Gradually, a seed of hope germinated in George's mind. The government, he had heard, sold land to settlers for next to nothing. That was the answer. A piece of land could provide him with the food, water, and shelter and free him from work from the white man. He put on his school clothes, surprised to find that his arms and legs had grown longer and his chest broader since he had left school. And he went to the government office. Land, he was told, could only be sold to settlers, white men. Indians could not buy land. He was shooed from the office as though he was a flea-ridden dog. But as he was leaving, another government official pulled him aside. You know you're entitled to treaty land, don't you? No strings attached, no charge. George chuckled as he replied. You mean the government is going to give me land of my own and I don't even have to pay for it? It's already yours. George couldn't believe what he was hearing. I won't have a boss tell me what to do or what to grow? The government official smiled. That's right. You can be your own boss. You can grow whatever pleases you. You can cut timber and build a house. You can do whatever your heart desires. You can sit and drink whiskey all day and watch the trees grow. And if that's what you want. I hear that's what most of them are up to. George couldn't help but sense that there was some loophole or condition that he had not as yet understood. Are you sure about this? I'm sure you're a status Indian. George had been called many names in his life, but this was new. And it means you're on the list. List? The status list. George's face was blank. You were counted by the government, and they put you on their list. The word status means legal status. It means you're legally an Indian. George had a fleeting thought of Mother Hall trying to make him an English boy. Even then, he doubted they would ever let him be one. Here was the proof. He was legally an Indian. Being status gives you rights, the official continued. What rights, George asked, shocked to hear that he had any. The right to live on the reserve, for one, and own your own plot of land. George's spirit sank. That was the catch. He had to go back to the reserve. If you were non-status, you wouldn't have those rights, the man explained. You'd have nothing. George, George's mind raced. Going back to the reserve is taking a step in the wrong direction, the educated George thought. But I want my own land more than anything in the world, his heart protested. The people on the reserve are sinful. If you go back, you'll be no better than them. You'll go back to their level. George's heart was not to be silenced, but I want the freedom that land will give me. The reasoning part of George was quick to counter. You endured ten years in that school to rise above the disadvantage of your birth so that you could have a better life than the old Indians. 
You can't go back. You're educated. You're better than the savages on the reserve. Who says? The teacher's at the school. Seems to me, George said with his whole heart to himself. The school didn't help me much. Getting educated and learning to be like them didn't do much good. The opposing voice was silent. The sound of bells pealed across the farmland. Conflicting thoughts still troubled George. It was Sunday morning, and he felt pulled toward the unassuming white clapboard building, yet repelled by it at the same time. He wanted to connect with the God-man, but he didn't want to be seen or be seen by the white skins who were arriving at the church in their traps and wagons. The congregation was singing a hymn as George pushed open the heavy wooden door and slipped into the empty back pew. "'All ye in Christ, draw near in faith, one brotherhood of man,' no one noticed George at first. He glanced around, his eyes settling on the figurine that hung on the wall, a crucified man with fair hair, blue eyes, and skin paler than even the palest white skin. George was confused. The godman at school had had long brown hair, brown eyes, and skin the color of a white man's summer tan. They've killed one another. George felt as though he had been punched in the chest. He gasped. A worshipper turned around and whispered to her companions. The singing died away until the pianist alone carried the tune. The old, familiar feelings rose again. His heart pounded in his chest. His palms tingled with sweat, and his stomach lurched. The pianist stopped playing. George rose to his feet and, willing himself not to run, pushed open the big door and walked away. His mind was numb, almost vacant, the way it often was when these things happened. But then a voice sounded in his head. Live the true life. What do you mean, George asked himself. Find the old ones. Learn their ways. George reached for the wolf-head pendant and caressed it with his fingertips. Do you mean I should go back to the reserve? Is this the way you have found for me, the path upon which I should tread? There was no reply. A wry smile lit his face. He spent his whole life learning how to become a part of a society that didn't want him. He had been taught to despise his own people, and now here he was, caught between two cultures, fitting in nowhere. But he was no longer captive to the school's teaching or punishment. He was free to return to his roots and to his wicked ways. He could learn the old language and the old ways. He could perhaps find some wisdom and make some sense out of life. At school, they had taught him he was uncivilized and unchristian, but he had found nothing civilized or Christian in them. They spoke of love, Christian love, brotherly love, the love of God, but they were filled with hate and greed. They destroyed everything around them. Chapter 28 George was shocked when he saw his mother. She bore no resemblance to the faded image he had in his mind. Of course, she had aged, but it was more than that. There was no light in her eyes. Her hair hung in matted strands. She smelled of alcohol and sweat. Star Woman was not unique. There were many others on the reserve just like her. At first, she didn't accept that George was her son. He, too, had changed. And even when he convinced her that he really was Mishka Maingan, she refused to call him George. But that was fine with the young man. George wanted to learn from the elders, and since none of them spoke English, George needed to improve his Anishinaabewean. Almost a year passed before he felt confident enough with the language to ask his mother about his father's death. The government man came here that spring to register more children for school, Star Woman said. Lolly had not even seen four summers. Your father told the man that she was too young, that she must stay with us for one more year. But the agent said your father was wrong, that Lolly must go to school in September. He who whistles went crazy. The man had a fire stick. This was not the first time your father had looked into its mouth. Red Wolf was surprised. When was the first? 
Do you not remember? It was when the white man said you must go to school. Red Wolf had forgotten the incident that happened so long ago, but his mother's words jogged his memory and a picture came to his mind. Were you screaming and fighting the white man, he asked? Yes. And did they almost shoot father in the back? Yes. The man was going to shoot me. Your father covered me with his body so the burning stone would hit him, not me. He was very brave, and in the end the white man walked away without firing. Perhaps the ancestors heard our prayers. Your father protected me that day, but he could not protect you. You went away to Bruce County School, and he never forgave himself. It was the biggest regret of his life, that he could not protect you. Red Wolf felt shaky inside. When the white man came to register Lally for school and your father saw the fire stick, he acted fast. He knocked it from the man's hand with a swift kick so he could fight the man on equal terms. The man was bigger than your father, but anger gave your father strength. He was fighting against all of the injustices that had been forced upon us, the loss of our land, and especially the loss of you, Mishka Maingan. Before long, the man lay on his back, groaning. Your father picked up the government fire stick. He pointed it at the man's head. He held it there a long time, long enough for us to see terror in the white man's eyes, long enough to hear him beg and plead for his life, long enough for us to smell the stench of his bowels, released. And then your father pulled the trigger. Redwell felt as if he had been hit in the gut with a club. Did his father kill the Indian agent, the one who had intimidated him and called him horse thief? He tried to remember the last time he had seen the man. It was before Father Thomas had told him that his father had been hanged. The man the father killed, he said, almost scared to ask the question. Was he the man who called me horse thief? Yes, of course. You didn't know that? Red Wolf was astounded. He barely heard the rest of the words his mother spoke. Your father waited for the police to arrive on their horses, Star Woman continued, her voice quivering. He didn't try to run away and hide. He gave himself up without a fight, admitting that he had killed the man. They took him away, and I never saw him again. All these years, and it still hurts me. She pulled herself together. I find, found out later that the lawmen did not speak Anishinaabewean or even Algonquian. They spoke to your father only in their tongue. He who whistles had wanted people to know why he had killed the man, but the lawman couldn't understand his words, so his voice was never heard. And of course, Lolly still had to go away to school. I haven't seen her since the day they took her from here. They said they were giving her to a white family because I was a drunk. The words caught in her throat. I don't know where she is. George wanted to hold his mother and comfort her, but he had learned to deny his emotions a long time ago. He turned from her and walked away. He was outside of the cabin when he heard her wail. The high-pitched keening tore at his heart, and although he didn't rush back inside and hold her in his arms, his own tears started to fall. He walked into the bush and wailed. Years later, when Father Thomas had told him that his father was dead, he had not mourned the way he did now. The grief shocked and bewildered him. He felt as if someone had reached inside and grabbed a vital part of him, tearing it away and leaving an open wound. He had always believed that he who whistles had not loved him enough to fight for him. And now the truth was almost too much to bear. He imagined his father swinging at the end of a hangman's noose. He doubled over and gagged. How could they do that to you? How could they take your life like that? George shuddered. George had planned to farm the treaty land that was rightfully his. He needed a few tools to get started. A saw to clear the land and a plow and a harrow. He didn't need an expensive horse like Daisy, just an old work pony or a mule. He'd been told that farmers could buy agricultural equipment with an interest-free government loan. 
George straightened the wrinkles out of his old school clothes once again, polished his boots. With bare wrists sticking out from under the jacket, bare ankles protruding past the trouser legs and buttons that were severely strained across his chest, he went to the bank. He was told to get out before the police were called. Indians were not allowed to apply for loans. Soon, George was no different from the dispirited people on the reserve. Numbed from reality by alcohol, sleeping until noon, he had no friends, not even among those who had also suffered the residential school experience. They were men and women living lives of individual pain, with spouses that didn't know how to love, and babies that didn't know how to nurture. And each September, more children were taken away. One evening, George was talking with a newly arrived graduate from Bruce County Indian School. Within seconds, George knew that he didn't like him. He was too disdainful of the people in the reserve. I'm not going to be here long, the young man explained. I'm going as far as I can from this godforsaken place, perhaps to York. Why did you come back here then? To try one more time to get Mother to accept Jesus. George laughed. Father Thomas is still giving the boys that job, eh? Yes, the young man replied seriously. Mother has resisted the gospel all these years, but she's not well. Who knows how much longer she has? George's humor was thinly disguised by his solemn and urgent demeanor. You must save her before she goes to the hell wigwam. The young man missed George's cynicism. That's right, he answered. The only way our folks are going to be saved is if we save them. Evil is all around here. Just today I heard about this very old woman who lives deep in the forest. She shuffles around banging a hand drum and singing, if you can call it that. She howls like a wolf to the full moon. She eats roots and leaves and berries. Lives in a wigwam like a real old-style Indian, he guffawed derisively. The old crone thinks she's medicine woman. George didn't hear the boy's scathing laughter. In his mind... He was at his grandmother's side, his tiny hand engulfed by hers, walking through the deep forests, searching for plants that made good medicine, sniffing for herbs to season meat and make tea, digging roots to dye porcupine quills, collecting acorns. Who is she, this medicine woman, George asked. The mother of that man who was hanged years back. George's heart skipped a beat. Are you sure? Yes. They say she lost her mind after the hanging. She went into the forest and never came back. She lives like a wild animal, a savage. George rushed back to his mother's cabin to question her, but the grandmother he had assumed was dead. Star Woman was dismissive. The mother of he who whistles has not been seen for many winters, she said. She is surely in the spirit world with he who whistles and grandfather and the ancestors. People have seen her. She is still alive. I think not, Mishka Maingan. Grandmother was alive. George knew it. Where is her wigwam? Do you know? Star Woman closed her eyes, and George waited, hoping she would say more, but soon her head lolled onto her chest, and she snored quietly. George wanted to shake his mother awake, but he sat patiently and gazed out the open door. Suddenly, a dog stood in the doorway. There were several dogs on the reserve. Some looked like wolves and were the result of crossbreeding between the wild and the tame. But this one was different. George didn't recognize the animal, and yet there was something familiar about the thick, mottled gray undercoat, the long guard hairs of burnished red, bushy tail and the amber eyes. He walked toward the dog, speaking soft words of greeting. The animal sniffed his outstretched hand and licked it. George dropped to one knee and sank his fingertips into the thick fur. Memories started to rise, memories of a wolf who was once his friend. The feelings were disturbing. George could feel his heart expanding in his chest. He didn't know what to do. He stood back and looked at the dog. Both ears were pointed upward like two triangles. But when he cocked his head to one side... But then he cocked his head to one side. With a faint yip and a look of curiosity on his face, the left ear bent in half and keeled forward. 
Tears pooled in George's eyes, spilling over and coursing down his cheeks. There was nothing he could do to stop them now. He threw his arms around the dog's neck and buried his face in the thick, warm fur. And he remembered. He remembered the way he had felt when he had buried his face in crooked ears fur. He remembered his mother, the way she had been, not as she was now. Her excitement the day he had stopped paddling the canoe in circles and propelled it in a straight line. She had jumped up and down, beaming with pride. He remembered spearing his first fish and hearing his father cheer. George's tears flowed into the dog's fur. He had never cried tears like these. Eventually, he raised his head and the dog licked the salt from his tear-stained face. He felt different, as though part of him was dying. But at the same time, he was alive in an unusually vibrant way. In a flash, he knew exactly what was happening. George was leaving. George would soon be gone, and Mishka Maingan was returning. He kissed his sleeping mother lightly on her brow, tucked the wolf hand pendant safely inside his shirt, and headed to the door. I'm going to find grandmother, he told the dog. Do you want to come with me? The dog bounded ahead. Red Wolf smiled and shouted after him. Do you have a name? The dog paused and looked back, his left ear flopping in half. In the language of the people, a name sounded loudly in Red Wolf's head. Son of Crooked Ear.